0: as we pray for your spirit to fall fresh on us we also pray spirit of the living God I yield to thee for when you come upon us in power you desire our surrender and it is the empty vessel that you fill it is the yielded saint that you've serve and work through. We pray, blessed Spirit of God, that you will do your work in our hearts today that we might see Christ, that we might see his glory and rejoice in our wonderful inheritance. For those who may not know Christ this morning, Lord, I pray that you will make him clear before their eyes as one who loves them, died for them and longs to forgive and redeem to save. O Lord, be honored and glorified in our midst today, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. When the Hebrew people were trapped in Egypt, they were groaning. Groaning is the sighing of one who is confined or trapped in some undesirable situation. Groaning is that inarticulate expression of a heart filled with disappointment, maybe despair, and even pain. In Acts chapter seven, verse 34, The Lord says, I've seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and I've come down to deliver them. A sigh is somewhat lighter than a groan. A groan is heavier. A groan is deeper. A groan affects our spirit. Sometimes we wonder in the midst of our groaning, does anyone care? That famous hymn, does Jesus care when my heart is pained too deeply for mirth and song? When the burdens press and the cares distress and the way grows weary and long. And the chorus answers with a great affirmative. Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. We live in an, a time in which groaning is dominant. It's inescapable. We're living in a world that does not work and is affected by the fall in so many ways. And as we see in the conflict in the Middle East, sometimes to its very worst degree. But there's a lot of groaning going on. And that seems to be the spirit of Romans chapter 8. The Apostle Paul acknowledges the groaning, but wants us to go beyond it and actually, by his grace, to see something that will be life-transforming. Paul says, in other words, we are helped to bear our groaning when we embrace God's grace and we have an eye to our future glory. It's not that the groaning is removed, but moderated, for we know what is coming in the future, and that makes all the difference in the world. The Apostle Paul is good at drawing a portrait of believers as they really are. Sometimes when we go in to have our portrait taken, uh, we may say to the photographer, This is my bad side, and this is my good side. It's so sad for those of us who have two bad sides. You just say, Take it anyway. Paul has shown us in Romans chapter 7, that's our bad side. But Romans chapter 8 is our good side. When we struggle with our sin and yet, by the Spirit of God, become more than conquerors. And yet the groaning is real, and we face it. Did you know that Jesus groans? I mean, we read in John chapter 11, when he arrived where Lazarus was buried and saw the people weeping, the scripture simply says that he groaned in his spirit, for his heart was deeply moved. I'm sure moved at the tragedy of death, which is the effect of sin, and moved at the ignorance of the people who did not know that he was the resurrection and the life. Our Savior cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with our grief. So let's open up our Bibles to Romans chapter 8, and I'm going to begin with verse 18, where the Apostle Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So he's acknowledged the difficult times, the battle with sin. And even though it is displayed in detail in chapter 7, it is still acknowledged in chapter 8 that we must yield to the Spirit. And it's only by the Spirit that we can put to death the deeds of the body But now Paul says, listen, I've I've weighed the evidence. I have consulted the truth. And here's my conclusion. Our present sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will come later. The sufferings we now endure bear no comparison with the splendor that is in store for us, says one translation. It's not a comparison, it's a contrast. There's no way the two can truly be compared. For future glory surpasses present difficulty. And that was an amazing statement for Paul to make because he knew a lot about present suffering. Think about it. The Apostle Paul was shipwrecked and he was whipped and imprisoned and stoned. The Apostle Paul had been through it all, and yet he says, those things are nothing to be compared with the glory that is coming afterward. I think our groaning often disguises our glory. Our groaning masks and clouds over what the glory is really going to be like. And Paul says, we need to have an eye. To glory. Paul said, I bear in my body the marks of Jesus Christ. And yet he still said, this is nothing compared to what is coming. It's also important to realize that, dear Christian, your present suffering will not negate the glory that is to come. Your present tribulation does not mean God's disfavor is upon you. What it means is that if we are like him, then we will be treated as he was. If they persecuted me, Jesus said in John 15, they'll persecute you as well. And all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, says Paul writing to Timothy. It's not evidence that God has turned his back on us. In fact, it's evidence that we belong to him. Paul said in Corinthians, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So when you look at these things, see the contrast and see the difference and have an eye for God's glory that is to come and embrace his grace that comes to us right now. Now, it's interesting in this passage that talks about groaning, the Bible tells us that creation groans, and that believers groan, and in verse 26, which we will barely get to today, the Holy Spirit groans. There's a whole lot of groaning going on. And it's important for us to understand it and to enter into it with the right biblical perspective. So first of all, he talks about creation groaning, and he mentions creation in four verses. In 19, he talks about creation eagerly waiting for something. In verse 20, he tells us, creation is in bondage to something. In verse 21, creation will one day be delivered or liberated. The thing that it's eagerly waiting for and liberated from the thing that holds it in bondage. And then verse 22, right now, creation is groaning. Isn't that an interesting poetic perspective of our world so beautiful yet under a curse? Let's look at, see what that means about creation waiting to be liberated. Verse 19, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Creation is eagerly waiting for that day. There's a great reveal that is going to take place. Think about new car companies when they want to show off the new edition of their uh, vehicle. And with all the hype and all the planning, there is this day of the big reveal. And they pull off the canvas and there it is. So there is going to be a big reveal. It's not happened yet. It's coming. And creation's waiting for that with eager expectation. Very interesting that the Greek uses two terms, come together, to speak of one who is, as it were, stretching out their neck, their head, to look ahead. It seems to me this is a perfect illustration of what a child does in waiting for a parade. Take yourself back a few decades, maybe more to when you were a child and your parents had taken you to a parade and you couldn't wait to see the color and the bands and everything else that was connected with it. And there you were, short, and, and it was hard for you to see and you're trying to push yourself up to the front and then in eager expectation, looking down the road, waiting for some sign of the parade to get going. And when it does, you're filled with joy. Creation is straining its neck toward the coming reveal that will bring liberation for it. J.B. Phillips, I love the way he paraphrases this section of scripture. The whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. And this reveal is connected with us. Look at verse 20. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of one who subjected it. Creation is a victim of frustration. It's not something that creation did, but the results truly come to it. And this is a reference to Genesis chapter 3 and the sin of man and the curse that came from it. You remember the story when Adam and Eve sinned and God cursed the world, he cursed the serpent, he cursed the work of man, he cursed the childbirth that women would go through. A curse came on the world. And the curse on the world was thorns and thistles. In the amazing beauty there will be difficulty and the world is under, as it were, a holding back and a curse from what it was meant to be. C.J. Vaughn in his commentary on the book of Romans says this insightful statement. The whole book of Ecclesiastes is a commentary on Romans 8.20. Creation is subject to vanity. In fact, the same Greek word that is translated in the NID." NIV, frustration, or maybe in your translation, futility, is the same Greek word used when translating the Old Testament into Greek in the book of Leviticus, or in the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity, vanity. The creation is subject to vanity. All is vanity. But you notice that the word subjected is used twice in verse 20. Once creation is subjected to frustration or vanity, but the second time it is subjected to hope. I've actually put those words in hope with the next verse because they flow with a thought, but here it is. God has subjected the world to hope, and that's why they eagerly, the creation eagerly expects Paul personifies the world as though it has these desires, and in some sense, it does. I don't know that I would talk to a tree or to a moose about the wonderful liberation that is coming. I'm not sure you would get very far. But in some sense, creation knows, and creation groans, and creation looks forward to its great deliverance. Verse 20 says, it's subjected in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. There is the definition of of its bondage, the reason it needs to be liberated, the reason it is groaning. It is in bondage to decay. And we see that all around us, don't we? You see the the floods and the hurricanes and the tornadoes, the natural disasters, the earthquakes, the drought, the avalanche. Happens in this beautiful world. You can see the gorgeous beauty of the Rocky Mountains. And then the rocks fall and end up causing horrible disaster. Creation is in bondage, a slave to decay. The process of deterioration, the cycle of birth and growth and death and decomposition is all around us. And the beauty of fall that we enjoy so much when when we think about it is that cycle of death which brings afterward from the color to the cold whiteness of winter and we're reminded that the world is in a process of deteriorating and longs to be liberated. Notice the words decay and pain. Those words depict the present suffering that happens in this world. But one day, when it's liberated, and this is hard to imagine, the world will be beyond its present beauty. It will be far more productive and welcoming. I mean, taken to a level that's hard for us to comprehend. How beautiful and glorious will be God's creation once it's liberated. From bondage to liberty, from liberty, from corruption to incorruption, from groaning to glory. Verse 22. So we know that the whole creation has been groaning. There it is. Groaning as in pains of childbirth, right up until the present time. Now there's an image for you the pain of childbirth. Many of you know what that is because you've gone through it. I've only seen it from a distance. And no man can enter in. But it is an expression, an image used throughout the scriptures. And there there you are as the husband wanting to rejoice in all that's going on and you've got your camera ready, now your cell phone ready to take pictures. And you're taking a picture of your wife in the midst of labor, and she says, I'm going to take that thing and shove it down your throat. Wait until the baby's born. And then take the picture. And you think about the horrible labor pains. By the way, Jesus used that same analogy in Matthew 24 when he talked about the end of the age. All of these things are the beginning of birth pangs. He acknowledged that creation is in labor and longing to be delivered. But the labor is not meaningless or without purpose because a new generation comes forth and God has got it all planned. So you have the creation of God, which is groaning. But get this, you have the children of God who are also groaning. That's us. Verse 23. Not only is creation groaning, but we ourselves who have the first fruit first fruits of the spirit we groan inwardly as we wait for our adoption to sonship. That is the redemption of our bodies. What an amazing verse of scripture. Like creation, we groan because we're not complete. Like creation, we groan because the fall has defiled, kept us from being what God intended in his original creation. But we have the first fruits, the spirit has given the fruit, first fruits of the harvest to come. It's interesting that this is kind of the agricultural image, but sometimes there's a financial image used of the spirit being the down payment and the guarantee that more is to follow. And now you have the first fruits of the harvest that come in that merely depict how wonderful the full harvest will be when it arrives. And we groan, don't we? Don't you groan and sigh in your spirit because you're not what you should be as a believer? Don't we groan and cry because the world around us is so broken? And how can we fix it? What can we do? And that's part of the groaning as well. There's much we can do in walking in this dark world as the light of Christ. Christ is the light of the world. Then Jesus said to us, you are the light of the world. As we live with Christ, we reflect his light. And that's what we must do in a dark world. But notice verse 23 says, we are eagerly waiting for something. Same idea. We're on our tiptoes, craning our necks. Waiting for the revelation. What's the big reveal? It's our adoption. Actually, it's the third stage of our adoption that we're waiting for. And this corresponds with the three stages of salvation. If you look at the word "adoption," you'll see that according to Ephesians chapter one, there is the predestination of the sons of God being uh, uh, appointed to to be and become the sons of God. It happens before the creation of the world. Secondly, there is the possession of our adoption, which we already have. If you look at the the book of Galatians or even earlier in Romans, we are the sons of God right now. And yet it doesn't yet appear what we shall be because it's not done. It's just the second stage. What's the third stage? The redemption of our bodies or the resurrection of our bodies. And when that happens, we are glorified. And the groaning turns into glory. We have the witness of the Spirit right now by which we cry, Abba, Father. That's our possession. But we have the waiting for the glory. The more I read in the book of Psalms about how we are to wait on the Lord. And now I see reflected in the book of Romans chapter 8... We are to be waiting for that day. I began to see how frustrating it is to try to live like Christ in a Christ-like world. And it's tough to wait for anything. The older I get, the harder it is to wait. Although when I reflect on my early life, I don't think I was very good at waiting for anything. But yet in my believing life, I am to develop this idea of patience. And I need to rely on the Lord and his perfect timing. You know why we're groaning? You and I are half saved. Just like with adoption, chosen before the foundation of the world, present possession of salvation with the Holy Spirit, the first fruits. Those are ours and yet we're half set, it's not complete. And no wonder we groan for full completion. Have you ever lived in a half-built house? I mean you're so eager to get in you can't even wait for it to be finished and yet some things need to be finished and you experience frustration because it's not done. Oh, I can't wait till the plumbers come. Oh, I can't wait till Jesus comes. And our salvation is wonderfully complete. We're not wholly saved. We're weak and fragile, subject to fatigue and sickness and pain. We have two problems. We're weak as human beings and we have in us a sinful nature and we groan because of both of them. Longing to be liberated. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly home. For while we are in this tent, we groan and we're burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. We groan to become the sons of God. We are not yet conformed in body. We are not yet conformed in character to the Lord Jesus Christ. But we will be one day by grace. And that's where wonderful 1 John chapter 3 comes in. Behold what manner the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God, the sons of God. Terms are used interchangeably in Romans 8. And that is exactly what we are. The reason the world doesn't know us is because it didn't know him. Dear friends, right now, We are the children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know when Christ appears, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And that's what we're longing to see. By the way, this is all done in hope. Look at verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. It's the hope that God gave to creation when it was <clears throat> subject to death. And it's the hope that we've been given when we too had been cursed by sin. A day is coming in which we will see him and be like him. For we will see him as he is. The Holy Spirit gives us sonship. The Holy Spirit is a witness in our heart that we are the children of God. The Holy Spirit has given us the first fruits as a pledge for what is to come, that our bodies one day will be redeemed. Hope is invisible, the scriptures tell us. Verse 24, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? Verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not have, we wait patiently for it. Hope grows strong in the heart that believes God's word and embraces it by faith, and that will change your life. Now, I'll just mention in verse 26 that the Holy Spirit is also groaning. Groaning, when, when we're so weak, we don't even know how to pray. Verse 26 says, the Spirit helps us and prays for us, that last phrase, with wordless groans. We'll talk more about that later. But all of this points to the fact That God one day will make everything right. As he created with the intention of glory. As sin brought consequence and death and decay into this world. But even in Genesis 3, there was hope. There was hope that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent. There was hope. And in that hope we live. And because we already have the Holy Spirit, the hope is just icing on the cake. And so we long for that day to see him. As the hope, our hope, sustains us in the midst of our present sufferings, so the Holy Spirit sustains us through his constant prayer. And he groans for us in ways we cannot groan ourselves. In other words, if God is for us, who can be against us? It's time to lift the spirits, to walk in the spirit, held by hope in the midst of the imperfection. There is the already of our salvation and the not yet because it's not completed. Live like children of God and long for the time when Christ comes back and makes everything new. There was, during the moody days of evangelism, a song leader that used to sing with him often, a soloist by the name of Charles Gabriel. And he wrote an amazing hymn, When all my labors and trials are o'er, and I am safe on that beautiful shore, just to be near the dear Lord I adore, will through the ages be glory for me. Our present suffering cannot be compared with the glory that is coming. Let's pray. when by the gift of his infinite grace I am accorded in heaven a place, just to be there and to look at his face will through the ages be glory for me. Do you know Christ? If you've never put your faith and trust in him, believe upon him today. Give your heart to him. He will give to you his spirit, changing you. He will give you hope. He will give you purpose. And one day he will make you complete. For when we see him, we will be like him. For we will see him as he is. In Jesus' name, amen.